Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Luke chapter 9 is where we left off last week. We're picking right up where we left off in verse 28, it says. Now it came to pass about eight days after those sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, um, he, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men stood with him. So in 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 the book of Luke, as we've looked at the gospel, Luke's writing a historical document. He's, he's said that. He's given us those cues. He's setting up what happened to build the church. He's going to go on and write the book of Acts. All of this is about how did this church thing happen? Remember, he's writing after the church has exploded throughout the Roman Empire. And he's hired and paid to document what happened. So a lot of the way he approaches this is what motivated these disciples to be doing what they did, and even giving up their lives for it. Like, how does that even happen? And it's still a relevant question today, I think. How, what is it about Christianity that motivates people to live their life differently? And how does this all work? How does it click together? And we get a taste of that every week when we share what's going on and, and, and what's going on in our lives and how the Lord's moving. And as a body of believers, we kind of fire each other up about that sort of thing. Verses chapters 1 through 4 are about Jesus' solo ministry. Luke then transitions in chapters 5 and 6 about him bringing in these disciples and teaching them the way that they're going to walk, how they're going to do this. Chapters 7 and 8 are all the different reactions to Jesus and the Word of God that he's teaching. And then chapter 9 so far, the disciples are being trained to go out and preach and heal. And then they come back and they get a glimpse of what's about to happen. They get a glimpse of the ministry at scale. You get the 5,000 people, but again, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, the perspective on the 5,000 miracle is about the impact it has on the disciples. In the other Gospels, it's about the fact that Jesus just did a miracle. And, and that's here too, of course. But remembering that this has been set up by the parable of the seeds, and then you get those narratives of Herod, Herod's not responding. He's perplexed. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. Yet everybody involved is understanding that the Word of God lands on different people in different ways, and the disciples are being trained in this idea. Peter just got done proclaiming in chapter 9 that Jesus is the Christos Theos, the anointed God. Not anointed of God, that's not, the of isn't in the Greek, it's anointed God. He is that, and the disciples understand this before everybody else, but this motivates them to be building a church with the rest of their lives. The Word of God has actually taken root in their hearts. And in fact, of all the characters we've seen since the parable of the seeds, it's these disciples where something seems to be growing and changing. They seem to be doing something different. Luke 8, verse 18, Therefore take heed now and hear, whoever has, to him will be given. To whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken away from him. When it comes to the word of God, those that embrace it are going to benefit from it. Those that don't embrace it aren't going to benefit from it. So Jesus tells them about a path that he then, he, then he introduces this really exciting idea. Look at how cool this way of life is. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go get killed on a cross. This path leads to crucifixion. And the disciples really struggle with this idea. Yes, the word of God's growing in their heart. Yes, what Jesus has taught is true. But he's inviting them to carry crosses in this process. 
Who wants to do that? I mean, even today, we don't do crucifixions, but would you even want to walk around on a hot day with a, with a bar of lumber on your back? Like, that's part of the journey. And so something has to balance this out. Mike likes the economy of the spiritual world in heaven. If there's a burden that God's asking you to take on, what balances that to where all of them, except for Judas, decide to take the burden? It's worth the trade. It's a benefit to me to take this path because I know where it's going. And I think what Luke's doing with this story today is we start to see what they saw. Yeah, it's going to the cross, but look at that. That's the reality of it. The curtain gets drawn back just a little bit and they see what's behind it. And this drives them to lead a church. So Peter grabs him, Jesus, and says no in the book of Mark. Jesus turns on him and says, that's Satan's thinking. Stop it. Don't try to take me away from my mission. And because Peter doesn't want him to go to the cross. He loves him, right? And Jesus is like, that's the path. I'm telling you that's the path. Don't take me away from that. So there's this idea of saving your own life, losing your own life. There's no shame allowed. You got to be all in on this. And he's teaching his disciples this at a really critical stage in the journey of the church and where it's going. At this moment where they don't like the idea of cross, he's saying you have to embrace this idea. You have to be okay with giving up your life. Because what is your life worth anyways? What are you doing with it? How much You could work your whole life and gain everything, but it's going to amount to nothing. And then he says that some of them are going to see the kingdom. That's where we left off, verse 27. I tell you truly, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They're going to see what's coming. And I think that Luke, Luke's interpretation of verse 27, we have a lot of theories on that verse today, but I think the way Luke wrote the chapter is this very next story is them seeing the kingdom of heaven, that there's a, there's a transfiguration coming. So in verse 28, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John's, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Luke takes the testimony of his entirety being Peter just said, you're Christos Theos, and then they go up to a mountain and pray. It says, now it came to pass. In the, in the, in the reading or the writing of that, that's a cue to us that there's a stepping over of some other events that have happened. Luke's not trying to be chronological here. He's trying to explain what happened. And so he sets these stories up in a particular order. And he says, after these sayings, which ties us into everything we just recapped, right? We're supposed to remember these sayings as part of what's going on here. So look at verse 27, and then you go right into the transfiguration. Luke hinges the whole gospel here. He's built up to the teaching and the, and the ministry of Jesus. And from this moment forward, we're going to see the disciples starting to take more and more of a role, and everything goes towards Jerusalem and the cross. So there's definitely a transition point with this verse, verse 28, that's going on. Then it says, Peter, James, and John, three witnesses. Uh, you only need two or more witnesses in a court of law in the first century. The fact that Jesus brings three people with him would indicate that he's giving more than enough evidence for this, of, of this story. But later on, we're going to see he tells them not to tell anybody. So the telling of this story is to be after the crucifixion. And he's timing this out and he's setting up. Who are these three? Peter becomes a premier preacher, a preacher in the church. He's called the rock of the church. He writes about Jesus, and because he's a fisherman, his writing's not that good, so he has a guy named Mark help him write one of the Gospels, right? One witness. Then you get John. He's the longest living of all the disciples. He's the only disciple that doesn't get martyred. Uh, he takes care of Jesus' mom, so clearly Jesus trusted this guy over his own brothers. 
He's a premier writer of the New Testament. He writes epistles. He writes one of the Gospels. He receives the book of Revelation and tells us the, what's going to happen in the end. Summing up the entirety of the Bible. That's John. And then you get James. Okay, this isn't the James of the epistle James. That's Jesus' brother James. This is just some disciple guy James that we know very little about. So you get Peter and John, these epic people, and then you get John's brother James, and there's no recorded great deeds of James whatsoever. And then I think, actually, I think that's pretty awesome that one of the three people that get this thing got no notoriety. Everything James did in his life it had to be pretty special, but none of it got documented. And you get people in the church that Jesus thinks are the greatest, which we're going to see in his teachings, that actually don't get accounted for much. They're the behind-the-scenes people. And you got to think, how important was James to these, these monuments of history that we've seen? Well, he's this important. He's one of the three witnesses. Perhaps with Peter being somebody who thinks, speaks before he thinks, and John somebody who's kind of wants to be one of the sons of thunder, and then you got James here who's also one of the sons of thunder, uh, you've got very active people. That's what we know about them. These are the, the people that are outspoken and ready to take this on. Maybe they're the most enthusiastic. No reason is given by Luke why it's these three guys, um, but we do know that these three guys are going to be the cornerstones of the church. They're going to be people that God builds it all on top of. And it says up on the mountain. Mountain is relative. We know the Alps. We know the Himalayas. We know the Rocky Mountains. In the Middle East in the first century, what they call a mountain is like something you can climb in about an hour, right? These are just highlands where you have a good view of everything. Um, I think it's interesting that God sometimes takes his followers onto the mountaintop. Sometimes he takes us into the valleys. And it's all part of the training to gain perspective, to gain heights, their faith is going to be tested and tried all the way to the cross, but God starts that journey from a mountaintop. This is why I pray to not, like, Lord, help me to not need the mountaintop, right? Because then he's just preparing them or reinforcing them for this journey that's going to be really hard for all three of them. They don't have Paul's writings. They don't have 2,000 years of church history. They don't have any of the things we do to see what's going to happen here. They only have really this trust in this carpenter that they're following, who they're calling rabbi for some strange reason. It's because they're learning from this guy. And they get this. Verse 29, it says, as he prays. Again, Jesus modeling prayer for his disciples. Luke's documenting that. He makes time for it. And he's doing it, we should assume he's doing it with his disciples again. This is an important thing. Before any journey or any work of God, there's prayer that goes behind it. Prayer that goes into it. The preposition here in as he prayed points to the event being the result of prayer, as though he prayed for this thing to happen. He wanted these guys to see something, to have revealed to them something Jesus knows inherently. Matthew and Mark use the word transfigured. Luke does not use that word. So even if your Bibles say the transfiguration at the top, Luke doesn't use that word. He's much more specific. Look at how he sets this up. The appearance... In the Greek is idios. It means the external form or the figure of something. The look of his face, and the Greek word there means countenance. Something changed in the look of his face. Now, I can do that just by going from a frown to a smile, right? And then he uses the word altered. This is a curious word. His, the appearance of his face altered, or in the Greek, it othered. Something is, it's the same in nature, but it became something other than what it was. 
not to confuse the word of mixing natures. In other words, Jesus's nature didn't change. It othered. Something happened to his face that looked significantly different. And again, Matthew and Mark just say he transfigured. But that might, you could confuse that with then he changed somehow. And Luke's very specific with his language. Again, he's the most educated of the three. Um, maybe Matthew would give him a run for his money, but he's using a very technical term here that the appearance of his face othered or it altered, it changed. But he didn't change in his nature. In other words, the same Jesus, but different eyes to see Jesus. His nature remains, but his appearance othered, right? And people say, what's going to happen when we go to heaven? What's going to be different about us when we go to heaven? The real miracle here is that Jesus has constrained himself to look human in the body of Jesus, the miracle that sustained every day of Jesus's life. If anything, God's letting that go a little bit and revealing a portion of the glory of Jesus to these guys. And the white word there is brilliant and glistening. And the glistening there is a verb. It's flashing like lightning. So th there's, he's trying to describe something. He simply doesn't have words to describe, but he's doing it as technically as he can. And I'm sure when Luke did these interviews, he's like, well, what do you mean it was hard to look at? What do you mean you couldn't see it? And, it, and, and the word and there, it's, it's white glistening. He kind of makes up his own word here to describe something that's impossible. Matthew uses the words, his face was like the sun. Well, have you ever tried to look at the sun? Right? You can't even take it in. Like there's something that our physical bodies can't handle when we look at the sun. It's that brilliant. So it was Jesus, but they could barely look at the guy. And part of that is how heavy and dark this world is. We live in a world, quite frankly, that's rotten to the core. And when you see something that's just pure and you can and, and your eyes get that flashed in front of you, like you can barely take it in. And this happens every morning when stuff turns the lights on when I wake up in the morning. If you're used to darkness, purity kind of hurts. It's hard to even take in. Their eyes have to adjust a little bit. So the contrast with this, I'm going to the cross, follow me. Now they get a glimpse of where he's actually going after the cross. So I'm going to go to this really dark place, but look at how bright I am. And he's going to take that light to a place of death and destruction and human evil that can't handle him. Not that he can't handle the cross. The contrast here is striking. The kingdom of God, though, isn't one person. And so he brings a couple people with him. And I think this is kind of cool. Verse 30, and behold, two men talked with him. Not 5,000 people. That we just got done with this mob of people that don't understand Jesus. But we get just a couple people that maybe do understand Jesus. So they talk with him. What's the kingdom of God going to look like? It looks like people talking, hanging out, fellowshipping. You also get the sense here that these guys were sleeping and they were heavy with sleep and they kind of wake up. And they can listen, they're hearing this conversation, like, who's Jesus even talking to? It's just the three of us up here. And it takes a while to get out of their groggy sleep to kind of realize Jesus is like talking with people. Two men, it's vague at first, and then they give the names. But there's this ongoing fellowship that Jesus has with two people that have existed long ago on the earthly plane. So some people just disregard this as impossible. You can't talk to dead people. Some people throw this story out just carte blanche. I think Luke's earned the credibility so far in his gospel with documenting everything meticulously. He's simply documenting what these three guys witnessed happen. 
And by this time, Moses and Elijah seem to be familiar with each other, like they're buds. They lived hundreds of years apart, but they're chatting with each other. Holy moly. So you'll hear me joke about the kingdom of heaven. We're like, I want to meet some of these people and hang out with some of these people. And I think initially when, you know, you get the, the main portion of people going to heaven and everything's established, you know, Moses and Elijah, they're going to have a lot of people crowding their tables. You know, people wanting to hang out and talk with them. This is why we read the, the minor prophets. So you can get into the short lines first. And then when everybody's sick of Moses, you can go talk to him in a few thousand years. Right? So by this time, Moses and Elijah know each other. They're friends. They're sharing stories. Moses and Elijah represent some pretty big things symbolically. Moses is the lawgiver. He has established the Jewish traditions. He's the guy that set up the tabernacle. He's the guy that sets up Joshua to be the first of the judges to rule over Israel. He's offered... Um, I think this is kind of cool. A unique thing about Moses is when God threatened to punish the Israelites, Moses stepped in and said, how about you just punish me instead? And of anybody that's ever walked the earth, Moses was refused in this. God didn't let him do it because it's the same as with Abraham and Isaac. He said, I'll be that sacrifice. But Moses had the heart of God in being willing to sacrifice himself for the people of Israel in the same way that Jesus is doing. Imagine that conversation between those two guys. And Jesus is like, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm going to do that thing you had a heart to do back in the day, only I'm going to do it for the whole world. And Moses is like, this is incredible. Then you get Elijah the prophet. All right? He's, of all the prophets by the Jews, considered the most significant. He had a ton of miracles. All of the miracles of Elijah mirror the miracles of Jesus, feeding people, saving people. Um, in the era of the kings... Elijah is a standalone prophet. He stood by himself. When everybody else was against him, he was on a hill and he was persecuted. He was depressed. He felt alone and God refused him that feeling. He said, you're not alone. There's a bunch of people that haven't bent their knee. And he went up and took on all the priests. The whole world was against him and he stood against him. And God stepped in with fire from heaven, saved him. But again, imagine that conversation. Elijah's like, I know what it means to stand alone. And you got these three long... Imagine Moses and Elijah's opinion of these three guys sleeping off to the side, right? These are your three guys you're going to take with you in this journey? What about me? What about Elijah? Like, we did it for you in the day, all by ourselves. You know, and I think the thing is, God doesn't see who Peter, James, and John are. He sees what they're going to be. Amen. And I think that's how he looks at all of us. Right? He looks at the mad, look at us lunkheads. What are we doing here studying the Bible? But he's just going to go on and say, oh, I don't see you for who you are now. I see you for what I'm going to do with you later. I'm going to use you. Moses dies and goes to glory. Elijah, 2 Kings 2, is taken up. He's raptured. So when it comes to the two things, you got Moses who dies a physical death, Elijah who does not, representing all Christians through all history. We're either going to die or we're going to get raptured. Right? And so you've got all these people that have gone through this sort of thing. All the Old Testament comes together with Moses and Elijah. And with Jesus, you've got the New Testament. One plan, one goal, one promise, one salvation. There aren't two different gods. There isn't a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. This story brings that all together. Side note, Moses is actually getting mercy from God right now. You remember back in the day he couldn't go into the promised land because he sinned? And in this transformed state, he's actually, where are they standing right now? They're in the promised land. So he's actually getting, like God's giving him some mercy right now that he didn't get in his earthly life. 
So you see also the idea that sometimes Christians get something really beautiful after death, but this life isn't going to, we're not going to get there. We're not going to see all that blessing and whatnot. So Moses is getting to see the promised land. He's getting to see the plan, how it comes together. He's getting to see all those things that God didn't reveal to him earlier. And then they appear in glory. It's not images of them, but them themselves. Like this isn't like they're seeing a movie of Moses and Elijah. The claim here is that they saw Moses and Elijah in person. It doesn't say they're floating above the earth like Renaissance paintings. It says they're standing there on the earth, walking around. The word glory there is doxa. It means splendored. It is not the word they use for Jesus. Luke uses that very particular language with Jesus. With Moses and Elijah, he just says they're in glory, which is where we get the phrase like, you know, if I don't see you tomorrow, I'll see you in glory, right? And we don't talk like that anymore, but it is in the Greek. They are inside of glory. In other words, they're not exuding glory like Jesus did, but they're in the light of Jesus and reflecting Jesus' glory. Again, Luke's language is really specific. There's still more than typical humans, right? Because they're closer to Jesus in his transformed state. They don't become like gods. We don't worship Moses and Elijah, but they know exactly, but they're definitely brighter than they were in their earthly form. That's true too. Revelations 22.5 says there will be no light in heaven. There's no lamp because the Lord God gives light after everything. So you have this idea. It says that, they, that you won't taste death earlier. And here it says they appear Satan's biggest weapon against us is to think that death is the end. That's the biggest thing he's got for human beings. If he can get people to fear death, then he can get them to do anything, anything to avoid death. And the Bible perspective on this death is that not only do we live in light after death if we follow the Lord, but they're not dead. In fact, the Bible's pretty particular about this language. There is no death for those that follow God. We only taste it. We don't like become it. Does that make sense? And the way they use this language, that they, we taste death, and then here we have people that appear, the evil focus on this life is a denial of the glory that's to come. Jesus shows them that the kingdom of God is us living in glory, walking and talking with the Savior of our lives. This is a lot like Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned, to walk and talk with God. That's heaven. To be in the presence of something so mighty and so glorious that we shine just by being around them. It's amazing. So death here is only a taste. It's not a thing. It transforms people that are in panic to people that are calm. It transforms people that were scared into martyrs. It transforms these three guys into people terrified of death to people that know that they're only going to taste it. That's awesome. And what this does is it sets up the whole church. These, these three guys will go to their deaths living for Jesus without any reservations and any holdback. Note the immediate recognition. I want to point that out too. Moses and Elijah do not have name badges on. They don't have a sign above their head. How did they know that this was Moses and Elijah? This is an interesting kind of thing. They know it. That's who those guys are. They're not guessing it. It's not some people say. It, it is written as though they have inherent knowledge that that's who that is which says something about heaven too. People say, well, we recognize each other and have, would you be little glowing light bulbs running around? Clearly, Elijah and Moses are immediately recognizable for at the spiritual level, you know exactly who that person is. People that they hadn't even met before. They know who it is. I think that's amazing. 
So we get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven through the eyes of these three guys and Luke's reporting and in three different gospels. And then they, they spoke of his decease. That sounds awkward in the English, doesn't it? I don't know how it's written or translated in your Bible, but they spoke of his decease. Okay, in the English, this is incredibly awkward. There's no way to translate this. This is why the translators struggled here. This is a really difficult passage. The translators are using the context of verse 27 where he's talking about them, about the Jerusalem, what he's going to accomplish there, and they've connected it to that path or that conversation. The actual, actual Greek, though, I think you'll recognize, and this is super cool. Get ready for it. Get your pencils ready. In the actual Greek, the word there for decease is exodus. And we know that Hebrew word, or the, and, and in the Greek, we know what that is. It means departure or exit. Who led the exodus in the Old Testament? Moses. Who led the sons of the prophets to get the heck out of the northern kingdom and move to Jerusalem? Elijah. They both led two of the major movements of the Jewish people in history. Now Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to exodus. They speak of his exodus. This is his moment, his time, where he's going to lead the people of God into a different era of history. It's figurative at best for death, like Jesus is going to leave this life and go to the next, but it's entirely accurate if death is only an exit to another location. It's completely the right word to use. You don't want to mistranslate that, but you also don't want to confuse your readers. So if you're an English translator, how do you even translate that word? Biblically, death is not final. It's an exit. It's just leaving this life and going to another one. Biblically, we live in this world like the Israelites lived in Egypt, but they were exodus out of that world. And biblically, we live in this world and we're going to get exodus out of here, either through death like Moses or rapture like Elijah, one of the two. I'm praying for rapture because I don't like health problems. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I just, I love this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. God's put this light in us, this Holy Spirit, that the excellence of, the excellence of power may be of God and not us. We're hard-pressed on every side. We're not crushed. We are not perplexed, but we're not in despair. Remember who was perplexed in this chapter? Herod. He doesn't get any of this. We're persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our body. Doesn't the transfiguration give light to those verses? This life sucks. This isn't what we're living for. Amen? I mean, that's the end of it. Although about to accomplish is this thing. Same conversation Jesus just had with the disciples, only now he's having it with people that get it. I can talk about Jesus all day with unbelievers, and it's frustrating. How long will this perverse generation not figure this stuff out? But man, I come to church on Sunday and I hang out and talk to you guys, people who just get it, and it's joyful. It's just, I, after Jesus has to deal with his disciples and even rebuke them and call Peter Satan, he just wants to hang with Moses a little bit and hang with Elijah. He just wants to hang out with these people who get it. And Moses' response is probably like, okay, Jesus, how's this going to work? How are you going to make your exit? There's so much of the law that you have to fulfill that God gave to me. And Elijah's probably like, yeah, Jesus, how are you going to make your exit? Like, there's so many prophecies. There's over 600 prophecies you got to fulfill. How are you going to do that? But it's not if he's going to do it. It's how he's going to do it. And those conversations had to be awesome. This is what the three disciples wake up to. 
They're just kind of sleeping and they're hearing Jesus talk about the exit and the plan and prophecies and law. I'm going to meet that law. I'm going to satisfy all the sacrificial laws. I'm going to satisfy all the prophetic words about Messiah and save salvation. It's all going to happen. I got this. I'm God. I'm, I'm, I'm actually here to do everything I said I was going to do. I'm Christotheos. I'm anointed God. And this is what it's going to look like. So they're waking up. They hear the audio first. I don't know if you've ever woken up like this. If you go on a men's retreat or a women's retreat and you're all kind of bunking together, the people that wake you up are the first people that get up and they start whispering and talking. They think they're being quiet, but they're really just waking you up, right? And you're waking up listening to it and it implies a longer conversation than what's recorded here. People can sleep spiritually too and I don't want to miss that image. People can be asleep spiritually. And so some interpret a state of shock here. I just interpret them kind of waking up to a calm conversation between these great, you know, Moses, Elijah, and the Almighty God. So now they're fully awake. So, you know, that, wait, wait, who's Jesus talking to? And they kind of snap out of that dream state. You're like, what is going on here? And you shoot up and, you know, throw your um, My Little Pony pillowcase to the side. And you're like, what's going on? And you got the kingdom of God happening. And they, what they wake up to is a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Fellowship with God. Our religion isn't a dream. It isn't a private revelation of some person we have to trust. You wouldn't believe how many people at the state fair think they understand their own religion that they've made up. Right? Tom got to talk to one. They've got it all figured out, and it has nothing to do with God's plan. And you're like, good luck with that plan. But we don't live in that thing. Our religion is rooted in world history itself. We can look at all of human history. We can look at all of the history of Israel. We can look at 2,000 years of church history growing despite all odds and under persecution almost the entire way. That We can base our religion on that. Like, explain to me why, a, why Israel still exists. Right? There's no earthly way to explain it. So we have the flood. We have the exodus. Entire nations documented. Israel itself fire on the temple in front of all of Israel, Assyria erased from the planet for no apparent reason in one night? Like, explain that history. Jesus feeding 5,000 people. That means 5,000 witnesses to what happened. Unquestionable historical events that go on. Healings, resurrections, an entire region of the world getting to know Jesus before the crucifixion. We have all of this happening. It's amazing. The only way to deny this religion, to be spiritually asleep, is to not care or intentionally ignore all of history, archaeology, witnesses, and documentation. You have to want to not to know God because you like yourself that much. They saw his glory. They didn't see him in glory. He projects it. It's his glory. That's the kingdom of God, is being in the glory and the presence of God itself. Again, I'm taking some time with this story because the way Luke worded this is so that we understand heaven and we get the relationships. He was extremely particular here. Note the next part. Simply seeing it doesn't transform Peter that much. And I want to point that out. Jesus could show us everything all at once. You'd say, why didn't he just show humanity what heaven looks like and let us pick? But there's a heart thing that has to happen that's not influenced by what we see. He's impressed, but he's not changed. We can show people miracles, but the heart remains the same. And this is, again, why Jesus needed to just spend some time with Moses and Elijah. He's, it's tiresome sometimes to talk to humans who just don't get it. Verse 33, then it happened as they were parting from him. 
right? So there's a good season of fellowship here. And then there's, okay, I got to get back because earth sucks and I'm going to go hang out where you had me before. And Moses and Elijah start to part or walk away from him, the him there is Jesus, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us not, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke adds, not knowing what he said. (laughs) He's just Peter, right? Peter's still learning here. His intentions are great, but he's just missing the point entirely. Right? We've seen this in our own fellowship. People come in and they show up once or twice and, oh, this is great. We got to do that, this, this, blah, blah, blah. And you got all this stuff, but you're like, boy, you're just missing the fact that we're family here. We love each other. We care about each other. That's what we do. And we're in that thing. But here's the other thing. You got to give Peter credit. He's getting a taste of heaven and he's like, I just want to stay here. I don't think anybody that's died before us is looking back from heaven going, boy, I wish I could stay there a little longer just to keep somebody company a little longer, right? When, they're, when you're in glory, they're, you know, they're coming back as, I think, as a blessing um, to reveal something to these disciples. But he doesn't know what he says. This is the thing. It's better to just stay quiet than to talk without knowing what you're saying, right? But Peter does this, I think, for our learning and education. Luke 8.10, seeing that you might not see, hearing that you might not understand, the not knowing what he said is the exact same language. He's just speaking, but he doesn't understand what's going on. God doesn't expect the spiritual sleeping, the blind, the deaf servants. He expects us to be awake and to see and to hear. And we have revelation that Peter did not. So Peter's got an excuse. You don't. Right? They were parting from him. The moment had passed. The time was over. That season of blessing was done. They're making their exodus again. Um, And it's good for us to be here again the idea of let's just stay on the mountaintop. But that's not what Jesus is called to. So in the same way that Peter said, you don't need to go to the cross, and he said, get behind me, Satan, isn't he saying the exact same thing here? Let's just stay in this happy place. Why can't we just stay here? Why do we have to go back into the messiness of dealing with non-believers? That said, Peter sees that this is an amazing thing, just talking and fellowshipping. Yes, that's what he wants. But he wants to do it and not let Jesus get back to the ministry, which is to go die on that cross. He's again encouraging Jesus to not do it. So the kingdom of God, the church, is just a little glimpse of the koinonia and fellowship and joy. Why can't I just stay at church all week? Why can't Sundays just last forever? I don't know about you, but I've had that thought once or twice. Why do I actually have to do a job six days a week? Why do I have to get back into the grind? Because that's where God's going to use you. That's where you need to be. But every week, he gives us just a little taste, a little glimpse of heaven. And if you don't like hanging out with other believers, eating great food, praying, worshiping, and studying the Word of God, there's not much in heaven waiting for you. Right? These are the things that as you go through life, you come to embrace them as like, that's actually where my life comes from. It emanates from Jesus, and I just want to be in his presence with everything I got. So let's not beat up Peter too much. He's getting a taste of heaven, and he's like, I want that. What sustains him after this? The church. And he starts to see just a little hint of doing that and hanging out. When we read the stories of Moses, it's like hanging out with Moses just a little bit. When we read all about Elijah, it's like just getting to know Elijah a bit before we get to meet him. And there's something amazing about that. So he wants to build three tabernacles. This is what he doesn't get. He's equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. He's elevating two humans up to a place of worship. He's venerating or making saints 
out of people. This is not okay. Um, again, we, we have people that have come out of the Catholic Church, but there's other denominations too that have, have come awfully close across this line where they take humans like St. Paul and St. Peter and St. Luke and they elevate them up to almost a deity-like state and they pray to them. Like that has to be really offensive to those guys. You know, even if they have, they've only tasted death and they're, they're living in glory at this point, um, it has to be, they have to be like, those people just don't understand. Notice also that Jesus doesn't kick Peter out of the church for this thinking. He just corrects it. And I, I think that's important too, to have some mercy and have some grace around mistaken theology. So in that sense, he's either elevating these two guys too hard or he's bringing Jesus down to a human level, which again, he's not understanding it. He's missing it here. So he needs a little correction. When we see miracles and revelations, when we see God's glory, we want to celebrate it, but we want to keep it often in terms of the flesh. That was so cool, we got to do it again. You know, this is like five-year-olds do that, right? You throw them up in the air and they're like, do it again, do it again, do it again. And they do it again to the point where you break down. And we do that as adults in the church too. That thing we did was so awesome, we got to do it again and again and again to pass the point of where the Holy Spirit's using it. But so Peter's doing this. If we think we can build anything worthy of a glorified glory of God, we're, in, we're embarrassing ourselves just like Peter did. We think we can build tabernacles and make special moments. We're not following Jesus. We're trying to construct Jesus. It's a presumption that he's doing here. Verse 34, while he was saying this, like God instantly cuts this off, right? This is what's going to wreck the church. If you want the right disposition towards the church, this isn't even worthy as a thought to finish. So God interrupts him. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. They don't enter tabernacles. They enter the cloud of God. The disciples were as fearful of, of, as this situation as anything else. We have multiple appearances of this cloud. And, and this is, I'm not going to go through all of them here, but know your Bible. Know that this cloud has shown up tons of times throughout the Old Testament. There's a description to this. At every major transition in history, this cloud has shown up as God revealing himself to humanity. It's fearful because if Moses and Elijah are walking into that cloud and Peter's not, it's scary to think I'm not going into the cloud with them. I'm getting left behind. That's a terrifying thought to Christians. I don't want to be left behind. I want to go into that cloud. I want to be with God in doing this. So, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Honestly, Peter's going, let me build tabernacle. And God just like, this is my son. Don't bring Jesus down to human level. Don't elevate humans up to Jesus' level. This is my son. He clarified. There's an interruption here. And there's an explanation point because the, the Greek here is emphatic. God yells this at these guys. Like, I don't like to get yelled at. It's, I'm a good guy. And it, it, I don't like to get yelled at by anybody much less God Almighty. This is my beloved son, hear him. When, his, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet, okay? Peter just learned a lesson, right? If you don't understand it, just shut up. And so he just backs off. They kept quiet and told no one in those days of the things they had seen. In those days implies that there was a season where they weren't supposed to say anything. So Peter doesn't add anything. He doesn't finish the thought. He doesn't know what to say, but he knows what he's seen. I feel that way sometimes as a Christian. I don't know how to explain it to people, but I know what I've seen. I know what I've experienced. And the best I can do is try to convey that to people. I know God is active in my life. I know because of what the Spirit does in me that Sam had a holy appointment with that lady on the street. 
I know it. And it's an amazing thing, but to an outsider, you're just like, ah, it's just a coincidence. No, it's not. That's ridiculous to think that's a coincidence. It's foolish to think that's a coincidence. God's using Sam because Sam's trying to honor God. And there's a relationship God's trying to establish with him that we all should be trying to establish too. And it's such a joy to be part of it. Some critique this story that it's told later. Luke includes the reason why. 921, it's because Jesus said so. That's why they held the story to themselves. Right? Why did they keep it secret? Why did they make it up after the fact? They didn't make it up. They just kept it quiet because Jesus told them to keep it quiet. That's the reason, and Luke includes the reason. Leaving parts of this narrative um, empty, we don't hear the whole conversation. We just hear what they saw. Um, and today, only I think some people are uh, like see this too. People that read through the Bible and do this, and they, they're not part of a fellowship of believers, they don't understand how this relates to the church today. And how these glimpses, these moments are things that God gives us to sustain us. We call them mountaintop experiences. And this is why it was on a mountaintop. But these are the things that sustain us as a believer. God says, this is my beloved son. He corrects Peter's assumptions and guides his disciples. He doesn't kick them out of the church or excommunicate him. He just corrects him. To be a son is to share the essence or the life of someone over a generation. So the voice of God speaks here as he did at the baptism, showing and defining Jesus as having the authority of God on the earth. He's the incarnate God. He's the nature of God incarnate. And he says to hear him. This goes back to what we were just reading about. Those who hear get more. Those who don't hear get even less. And he's trying to teach these disciples. It's the same lesson that we were on last week to listen to what Jesus says. So this prioritizes Jesus over the law and the prophets symbolically with Moses and Elijah. Those were just a shadow or a predictor of Jesus. And it's given by God that we're supposed to give preeminence to the teachings of Jesus. So when in doubt, go with Jesus on things. And that's where we get that as Christians. To hear Jesus over Moses is to hear to is to is to not understand Christos Theos. Luke 8, 18 lesson, therefore take heed now you hear, and now he's asking Peter to hear. Continue to hear and know the truth. Jesus then was found alone. All the sights, the voice of God, everything just disappears and everything comes back to the flesh and the earth and everything goes back to normal. For anyone that's even glimpsed that transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, that had to just be like stripping away the joy that had welled up in their hearts. It's just in an instance, it's gone. Okay, now finish this work you have here. Listen to Jesus. Do what he says. This is what's waiting for you on the other end. Glory. And glory's coming and it's going to be amazing. So they all kept quiet until the resurrection at least. Both Peter and John write about seeing it in their Gospels. And Luke records this in his Gospel. So it's very clear that they were happy to talk about this when the time was right. Um, in those days, as long as Je Jesus was with them, as I think what, what in those days means. Then you get this story about healing. And I, I, I want to do this. Uh, we're not going to finish the chapter today. So if you're in panic mode, we won't go for four hours. Um, but I do want to get this, this next couple pieces in here. Verse 37. Now it happened on the next day. So that next day connects it to the transfiguration story. And again, look at how Luke's writing this. When they had come down from the mountain, so again, making a connection, that a great multitude met him. Now we're back with that crowd that we were with before the mountaintop experience. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son. For he's my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, 
and he suddenly cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with a great difficulty bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And then Jesus answered, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Again, he just got done chatting with his two buddies, right? This had to be tough for Jesus at, at the flesh and the human level. As an incarnate being, he had to be like, wow, this is tough. How long shall I be with you and bear you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Taken care of. It is nothing for Jesus to deal with these situations. So we get into situations and we get scared, timid, even terrified. Boy, we got to lean on Jesus because, yes, we can't handle that stuff. But Jesus can. He can evaporate those things. So really... The casting out of demons has already been done in Luke. Chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. There's nothing new about Jesus casting out demons. Like, he's done it tons. Why does Luke include another example of it? What, what's different about this casting out than the previous ones? And I think the difference is, it's the exact same situation, but a totally new perspective. Because we just got done with the transfiguration. He's contrasting this with glory. Glory is to walk and talk with God. This life is to deal with this garbage. And the perspective is totally down. They have come down. So step by step, they're going to be moving towards Jerusalem, the rest of the Gospel of Luke. They're going down from here towards the cross. And then Acts, they will be climbing back out of that pit. So some point here is that there really isn't a difference. Jesus is doing exactly what he's already done, but he's returning to this ministry because he loves humanity because it's the journey. Here's the multitudes again, here's the demons again, and they're all minimized. They're all less imp impressive in the light of glory. Mm. Everything here is not as impressive because now we know what's coming. So Luke shows how the mountaintop goes to the valley. Majesty goes to corruption. Worse, the other disciples are bickering. In Mark 9.14, they're arguing with the scribes. You got the holy people that know everything, and they're arguing with these disciples of Jesus. Right? And they're bickering and they're fighting and they can come down the hill just like they woke up and they woke up to Jesus talking and that had to be glorious. As they're coming down the hill and they're getting closer and closer, they can hear the arguing before they hear the words. Do you know what I mean? They're almost like, oh, it's like pulling me back to sleep. I don't want to hear it anymore. Luke leaves out the scribes in his narrative because it's irrelevant to the narratives. The disciples need to see and hear the scribes are unimportant. Oh, that the church could understand that those arguments are unimportant. And, and, and the Spirit seizes him. We know this is evil. The Holy Spirit doesn't seize people or overtake them. Demons do that. So we know that this is evil. It suddenly cries out. We know this is evil as the Holy Spirit isn't loud, improper, or uncontrolled. But this demon is. Mark 9.18 calls it a mute spirit. And in Luke, he's crying out. And people get arguing about that. Um, distinctly speaking, the mute spirit or the idea of Mark is not contradictory to this mute spirit in this language and in this time simply means it won't give its name and it's not being compelled to give its name because they had this weird superstition that if you can get the name of the demon you can cast the demon out nonsense jesus trumps all of that so it convulses it foams at the mouth some people look at this passage and they get all caught up with well that's an epileptic seizure clearly that's what that is medically um, luke didn't understand that um, but in this case, first of all, we should know Luke is a doctor. He knows darn well what that is. They weren't dumb. They knew, they knew the difference between a health problem. 
Also, the fact that Jesus casts it out and it leaves and it's over with and the boy goes home with his dad says this wasn't an epileptic seizure. This was demonic possession. Um, there is a word here for that he uses. The word convulses there. We think of that as like j jittering around. In the Greek, that word means a tearing. It happens when a demon uses human vocal cords and it rips them to the point of being bloody. It's a horrible word. And this boy was being tortured. And Luke lets us have it in all that graphic imagery. He uses the word there, convulses. The demon threw him down. Dr. Luke is clarifying this is not epilepsy. It's a demon doing this to this guy. And the, the witnesses there see that and they know the difference. The phrasing here is that there's a connotation of finality. Uh, the demon threw him down is more like the demon knocked him out. It was like a knockout death blow, like a kill punch. So in the, the light or in the face of Jesus, before this boy could get to Jesus, the demon does everything it can do to destroy the boy before it gets to Jesus. Mark, 29, or 9, Mark 9, 26 actually uses the word dead. The spirit killed the boy. So whatever you believe about demons, the Bible's super clear on it. Like the Bible doesn't seem to dance around these topics at all. Which then is more real to you, the ugliness of evil or the glory of God? You see the contrast Luke is painting? The transfiguration of Jesus or this ugly demonic garbage? Which one's the one to bet your life on? Which one is worth going to a cross over? Right? Peter wants to avoid the cross and stay in this garbage. And Jesus has given them an image of glory, which is worth the cross. It's worth going through that. So he says, I implored your disciples. They tried. They failed. They were still learning. This is good for them. They taste victory back in verse 1. They taste growth in verse 19, and they taste heaven in verse 29. Now they taste failure. Isn't that good? We as Christians think if we fail, we're just, we're, you get some Christians that they fail in something, they fail a spiritual battle, they, they fail in an interaction with a non-believer, and they think, what good am I for the kingdom of God? But the right perspective, according to this gospel, is maybe we should be just learning and keep our hearts open to figuring it out. It's really down to earth. In a spiritual battle, there are wins and losses, and even the disciples had losses. So unless you think you're better than the disciples, you're going to probably have some losses too. And that's not an end to your journey. It's just part of the process. They also learn to bring their tougher problems to Jesus. They don't give up. They bring them to Jesus. And we should learn the same way. We should bring our problems to Jesus. Jesus says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long sh shall I be with you and bear with you? How long shall I be with you and bear with you? Jesus is coming off the mountain too. <laughs> There's a heavenly plan here, but he's choosing to deal with us instead of staying on that mountain. For God to reduce, incarnate himself at our level is actually a burden that God bears for this 33 years of history. A gift that we have is that he had bared that burden for us. We sense that Jesus is getting ready for the cross. He's happy to go. Um, but he calls the crowd faithless. In other words, the problems here is ignorance, unbelief, willful sin. And there's kind of a tone of heartbrokenness here too, I think, not just from frustration. But he's like, man, you guys, the perverse generation is a microcosm of the world. There's bickering religious folks, thorns from chapter 8. There's a mob of worldliness people filled with rumors and falsehoods, the stones of chapter 8. And there's demonic influence, the birds from chapter 8. You see how this all connects to the seeds? Everything's here in one spot. All the, and you have the disciples. They're unsure, they're weak, they lack in the flesh. They're without the Holy Spirit and they're powerless. 
they have, they're the good ground that actually believes everything, and they're not able to handle it. So that's what the world is. And then you get verse 41, two of the greatest words in the gospel. Then Jesus. Right? Then Jesus. And Jesus just turns all, this is a singular gospel in that. You could sum up the gospel in two words. Then Jesus. Everything goes like that, and then he changes everything. He changes all of it. The arguments shut up. The crowd gets to see something. The disciples get to learn, and Satan has no power whatsoever in this situation. With an unrevealed glory, there's all of that nastiness, but with revealed power and authority, God just ends it. Whatever struggles there are, whatever there are things there are, they're there because God wants us to endure and learn from those trials. Because when God wants to end the trials, they're done. It's over. So when we do that, we march and we know that that's how God works and we know that's the character of God. It helps us in those struggles and in those trials. Jesus rebu- then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child. He doesn't only handle the demon, but he helps the kid. Returning the child to health, or if you're in the Gospel of Mark, returning him to life again. And, I, and this is the thing. You see one person give their life to the Lord and you see that burden lifted. You see that demon leave. And you see the joy in their eyes. You see that turning of faith. Everything else is worth that moment. And believers, if you're not sharing your faith, you're never going to get to see that moment with people. If you never ask the question, have you given your life to the Lord? Are you following Jesus with your life? Have you turned from your sinful ways and you're moving towards the glory of God? If you never ask that question to people, you'll never get the answer. Or as Michael Jordan says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right? Jesus will make sure they don't miss this lesson. We live for heaven, but we have to abide here for now. Again, Jesus then goes right back to predicting his death. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he turns, he says to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. See how awesome this is? But remember, I'm going to die for your sins. That's my mission. Right? It's going to be the disciples and the church's job to take territory away from Satan. Because Satan's not at Jesus' level either. Moses and Elijah aren't at his level. Neither is any of the demonic forces. They're just not at Jesus' level. So he leaves that job to us. But they're amazed at the majesty of God. Different kind of amazement here. This amazement is in the Greek implies to be knocked back or struck like a blow has been hit to you. So you get hit in the face and you go backwards. That's They're amazed. Like They're just like, whoa, look at this. The majesty here in terms is in rule over the earthly realm. They see the transfiguration in the heavenly realm, but now they see Jesus' dominion over the earthly realm. The disciples go from humiliation and bickering to like, See? Jesus. And that's what we do as a church, too. We don't have to win the battles and the arguments. All we need to do is point to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Ignore me. Pay attention to him. So the scribes go from haughty, like we know better, to humiliation and irrelevance. We don't have to deal with legalistic people or people that think they know better. It's amazing. You get people walking up to the Bible table and they're like, what version do you have? Oh, that's not the right version. You're just like... You're, it's so irrelevant. Like, don't you even know the glory of God is just a bet? A, no, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for the pirate Bible. But, like, if there's a due diligence Bible that's been translated from the Greek and the Hebrew, like, I, you know, come on. Every secular, 
Every other secular and Jesus source acknowledges that Jesus healed. They argue over how he healed, but not if he healed. Right? Every other secular and Jesus source acknowledges that he dies and rose again. They, they don't debate that Jesus was not in the tomb. They debate how that happened and what happened. So you have thousands of witnesses of this. The multitude is here, and even as enemies see it and hear it all, it's in their face, it's obvious and it's clear. They're amazed, but they don't get it because they're going to turn on Jesus. The same crowd will turn on Jesus, even though they've seen what he's done. Humanity will turn on Jesus even though they've seen the church. It's, they're capable of it. They don't understand it, as it says in the passage. But while everyone, don't get enamored with the crowds. I think this is what the disciples are supposed to learn. Don't get enamored with crowds. Multitudes can be around and just miss it and miss it entirely. Don't get enamored with miracles, any of it, because they're going to turn on a dime, even though they've seen miracles. Don't be marveling that the crowd here is a case study. It's a perspective. And I think that's how Lucas set, set this up for us too. God, can, God, people can easily marvel at crowds, but that's not the goal. The goal is to hear and understand with whoever's in the room. Hear him. They marveled, thamazo. They wondered about it. They tried to make sense of it. Like Herod being perplexed, they don't quite get the power of this. To his disciples, and, and he's teaching his disciples in this moment. I think it's such a significant moment because they were so excited about feeding 5,000 people. That was so awesome. And now here he's back with that multitude and he's saying, don't get excited about that. This is about the heart and what we're doing. Let it sink down into your ears. He's begging them to hear this. He's been teaching it since chapter 7. Listen to me. So the your here is emphatic in the Greek. No matter what the crowd thinks, you keep this thought. You memorize this thought. The Son of Man's about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus died for our sins, he was crucified, and then he was taken up into glory so that he could prepare a place for us in heaven, having paid for our sins. Let that sink into your ears. That's the only thing you need to grab from the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. There's earthly majesty, and then there's heavenly majesty, and the mission hasn't changed a bit. If Jesus marveled or mocked, it, it, it doesn't matter how people react to Jesus. It's the same mission. He's still going to die for their sins, even though they're mocking him. The same crowd will call for his crucifixion, even though they're cheering him right now. Frankly, when the Romans enact crucifixion, the fear of government is going to dominate their hearts. I want to point that out. Satan's primary weapon is the, the administration of a government to get people to ignore their God. And the, Satan will use that weapon, the threat of being unpopular, unwelcomed, not liked, getting bad grades, or even getting killed will wither away the crowd of believers. And Satan will wither that crowd away as best he can. He wants people that will die for him, that will give their life for him, that understand sacrifice. Because Jesus died for me, it's a reasonable sacrifice that I give my life back to him. No government stands in the way of my worship. No, nothing, no thro nor thorns, no stones, no birds. Nothing gets in the way of that. Frankly, if we are worried about being unpopular, we are then fearing something God's told us not to fear. And then you say, but, but, but I still worry about it. I still, I don't want to be a, I don't want to get into it with people. I want to be a person of peace. And so you have your own flesh working in this conversation with God. I marvel at what Jesus did, but man, I don't want to stand behind him when it gets tough. 
And there's something that all I can say is they took him to Jesus and the same solutions there for us. All we do is take that battle and we bring it to Jesus. Lord, make me more bold. Take away my fear. Help me to not care what people think. And that journey might be a tough one. You might be taking up your cross every day and having to take that journey. But pray for God to help you do it. And then you get these moments every now and then where you're like, surely God is with me, even though I'm a screw up. Christian disciples often carry beliefs that we don't want corrected. We don't want to understand better. So instead of hearing Jesus, we fear what the answer might be. So we ask for something that, that God doesn't want for us. It happens all the time. It happens for me all the time. So we're ignorant, we're hidden, we're perceptionless, and we can remain that way if we remain in fear and if we remain cowardly. And the, the opposite to cowardly is to just be saying, I, I want to have courage. Not to be brave. To be brave is to jump in with stupidity. To be courage, courageous is to have fear and ignore it. To see the situation for what it is, to understand it in all its reality, and to say, I'm going to move forward anyways. That's courage. And God says, be strong and courageous. To ask him about this saying, in the Greek, the actual order of words is about saying that. They don't want to get into it with Jesus because they want to not talk about it with Jesus. So I think it's interesting. It was hidden for them. They did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him because they still have some things to learn. In fact, the Holy Spirit hasn't been unleashed on the church yet. Luke's going to bring us that in Acts. But at this point, these disciples are not necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit to help them get over these things, like any other Christian today, we can't overcome these things without the Holy Spirit. So at the end of the day, they're just like, I just want to talk about it. And people do this with prophecy too. I just don't like to talk about prophecy because I just don't want to get into it. All right, well, that's an interesting approach, but it's basically like, I think you should pray, Lord, help me to be more welcoming of what's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen next. I want to be aware of it because you've told us, you've revealed it to us. I want to know it. And so for that sort of thing, and I was one of those people, I was like, I just don't want to talk about prophecy. But at some point, you got to be like, Lord, I want to understand better because I don't want to live in fear of things. So there's a basic fear the disciples still have. They don't want him, they don't ask him because they don't want him to talk about it more. And in doing this, when the crucifixion happens, they run in fear because they're not ready for it. They haven't prepared for it. It's all kind of a shock to them. Maybe if we don't talk about sin, we don't have to address sin. Right? That's, that's the thinking. Maybe if we just let that behavior go, we don't have to hear that the behavior is wrong, hurtful, or destructive. Maybe if we never talk about our own sins with people, then those sins will just go away. Right? This is what our dog does when he does something wrong. He just hides his face. Like if we can't see his eyes, like he's, we can't see him. Right? Yeah. Maybe if we don't talk about Jesus dying on a cross, it's going to remove the need for that to have happened. And that's a dangerous thing for the church. And there's a ton of churches today that just don't want to talk about sin, death, the cross, repentance, and recovery. And that's dangerous. The truth unspoken remains the truth. If the truth is stepping on your toes, move your toes. We don't move the truth, we move us. And we stay mobile to it. And that's exactly what God asks his disciples to do. Just hear him. Hear what he says. So even if you don't like what you're hearing, at least understand what God's saying before you come to your own conclusions on how to deal with it. So we'll finish the chapter next week, God willing, if we're still here. Um, and we will uh, finish out chapter nine. What a tough chapter. Like there's so much in this chapter. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for 
the blessing of getting to know new believers and other people. And we just thank you for the time that we've had this summer and the adventures we've had uh, just as a body. And we just thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself. You are moving. You are doing things. And we get to hear those stories. We get to watch people commit their lives to you. Lord, I pray for those people that they can get connected to a fellowship. Uh, it's not just to um, hear and believe you, but it's to follow you and to live a life committed unto you. Uh, so, Lord, we ask for your help in that. We can do nothing and we can bring nothing to the table in that area. We need your spirit. We need you to work in our lives. Renew in us a clean heart. Um, restore in us um, a desire, Lord, for, for the glory, for, tra for a transfigured life. Lord, help us to not fear death. It's just a taste. Real believers don't get death. We get a taste of it. And so, Lord, help us to not fear that and to not fear the opinions of the mob and the crowd. Lord, help us to not fear uh, demonic activity. Help us to understand how much authority you have and how much control you have. Most of all, Lord, prepare our hearts and we just continue to look at the parable of the seeds and help our hearts to be good soil. That we hear your word, we listen to it, and we let something grow. And Lord, we just pray for your blessing today. Bless the food we're going to eat, the feast we're going to have, and Lord, may it just be a joyful time and a refreshing and a renewing time. May we get a little taste of heaven today. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.